Imagine being able to see every color of the human genetic spectrum, all in one panoramic view. Welcome to the world of the human pangenome. This is Double Stranded Podcast and today we're joined by Christian Groza, a bioinformatics PhD student who's trying to illuminate the hidden and variable regions of our genetic tapestry. Get ready for a deep dive into the heart of what makes us, us. Could you clarify the concept of a pangenome and how does it differ from a conventional reference genome like the GRCH38? Uh, right, so in the word pangenome, we have two things. We have the first part, the pan, and the second part, the genome. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows a bit about the second part, the genome, uh, which is the DNA sequence of an organism or, or one individual. Uh, the word pan means that now we're talking about the sequence of everyone, right? So we're no longer talking about a single genome. We're talking about the genomes of every uh, individual of that species, mm-hmm. essentially. And uh, yeah, so far, GRCH38, for example, is really only one genome. It's not all genomes. Mm-hmm. So uh, the paper mentions that the draft human pangenome contains 47 phase diploid assemblies. I was wondering, uh, so like, how were these specific individuals uh, uh, were selected for the cohort? Like, what's the selection process? Right. So, the HPRC uh, selected these individuals in order to maximize genetic diversity. Mm-hmm. If we look into their paper, uh, we see that the the majority of individuals are of African ancestry. Then, uh, following that, the second largest subpopulation are individuals of American ancestry, and then we have uh, uh, a smaller group of uh, individuals of Asian ancestry. Mm -hmm. So this was done in order to maximize the number of variants, of genetic variants, that will be observed by sequencing the smallest number of people. Mm -hmm. And why is that? So so you're saying that these ancestries have the most genetic variation? Right, so we know from previous studies, from HapMap, the 1000 Genome Project, that uh, uh, individuals of African ancestry are uh, the most diverse. Mm-hmm. So their genomes are uh, more dissimilar from each other than, for example, two individuals of European ancestry or of Asian ancestry. Mm-hmm. And that's because the African population is really the oldest population on Earth, and they had more time to accumulate mutations and genetic variation. Uh, while the European population and the Asian population, well, they, they diversified uh, more recently after mm-hmm. uh, humanity left Africa, which is why uh, uh, Europeans and Asians are less diverse. Mm-hmm. And what about like uh, the sex? Uh, because like uh, we have XX and XY, so like is this something that they consider as well? I would expect that uh, the male to female ratio to be about equal. Mm-hmm. Um, they managed to add uh, 119 million base pairs of euchromatic polymorphic sequence and 1,529 gene duplications relative to the existing reference uh, GRCH38. So before I ask my question, can you please first uh, define euchromatic polymorphic sequence and uh, gene duplications? Right, so 
the genome has a particular structure. Uh, it has uh, these regions at the ends of chromosomes that we call telomeres. Mm -hmm. They are composed of uh, the single motif that's very short and repeats over and over and over. And then in uh, roughly around the middle of chromosomes, uh, we have what is called the centromere. Again, this is composed of, uh, of, of repeats, so a small number of motifs that repeat over and over again. And uh, this, is a, this is not euchromatic sequence, mm -hmm. right? This sequence uh, is usually in a repressed state. The chromatin is very uh, compressed and compacted and usually is very poor in genes. Mm -hmm. So we, we do not call this to be euchromatic sequence. Uh, other regions outside the centromeres and uh, telomeres for, for, for this study is called euchromatic sequence. Mm -hmm. What about the gene duplications? Uh, right, so the human genome has about 20,000 genes. Mm -hmm. They found that in some of these genomes, certain uh, genes uh, appear in more than uh, one copy or uh, in a larger number that is present in the reference genome. Mm -hmm. So some individuals might have one copy of a gene while others might have two copies of a gene. Uh, I'm not sure if these are like full copies or functional copies. Mm -hmm. They might not be. But uh, that's a that's what they obtained on a first pass in annotation. Mm -hmm. And um, so, like, uh, I don't fully understand. Like, what's the process? They just like sequence everyone and then like somehow average out and like put out something as like the average. Right. So the 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 number you coded is probably the total uh, across uh, all the forty seven genomes. If you look at per individual basis, it's probably something like. 100 mm -hmm. duplicated genes per per genome uh, approximately 90 million of the additional base pairs come from uh, a structural variation so uh, maybe uh, you can tell us uh, like what is a structural variation right uh, well in human genomes we observe multiple classes of genetic variation mm -hmm. many people know about the single nucleotide variants which is the substitution of a single base pair from mm -hmm. a to t or from c to a uh, also, we can have bigger mutations, for example, indels, which can involve anywhere from one base pair to uh, 50 base pair. But as soon as uh, an indel or another sequence mutation exceeds 50 base pairs, we're starting to think of it as structural variation mm -hmm. because it comprises uh, a larger segment of DNA. Mm. And like, uh, what's uh, the importance of structural variation in the uh, study of genomics? Structural variation is important because it involves many base pairs and can have larger effects. Until now, it was very difficult to access structural variation. So technologies in the past could only sequence very short fragments of DNA, 100 base pairs at a time mostly, which gave us access to the small uh, genetic variations such as uh, single nucleotide variants and the indels, but it did not really allow us to resolve the sequence of structural variation. So in this study, uh, they used a better technology, a long read technology that can sequence larger fragments of DNA in one go. Mm -hmm. So they are able to give us the sequence of the structural variants, mm -hmm. which uh, uh, until very recently was very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, since my project is uh, 
related to GWAS, I was just curious. So um, basically, like no matter how many gene uh, structural variants uh, they just find, it doesn't like really affect me because like I'm just uh, concerned about uh, SNPs. Is that correct? Oh, it certainly can affect you. So in the pan genome, there might be SNPs that uh, are not present in the reference genome you are working with. Mm -hmm. So it will be possible for you to find those SNPs and include them in your, in your project. Moreover, you could even do GWAS on the structural variants themselves. Mm -hmm. So genetically speaking, uh, a structural variant or a SNP, it's just genotypes. So there's no reason why you can't take the structural variant genotype and plug it into your GWAS models and obtain associations with the phenotypes and so on. Mm, yeah. Um, who would like directly benefit from pangenome, like an updated version? Well, of course, the benefits uh, are not uh, well known yet because it's such a new development, but areas like precision medicine, uh, where uh, uh, the genetic background of individuals might be important, uh, for example, uh, the, there are regions in the genome such as the HLA or the KI, KIR, mm -hmm. which are very genetically diverse, and they were uh, uh, poorly represented by the reference genome because it only shows us one possibility out of the many possibilities. Uh, so by using a pangenome reference, we would have a fuller picture of what is the reality mm -hmm. and uh, maybe make better decisions. Mm. Uh, so the, the paper uh, states that using the draft pangenome reduces errors when discovering small variants by 34%. Could you discuss the methodology that led to this significant improvement and why it's significant? Right. So when we analyze genomic data, we usually take uh, a whole genome sequencing data set, and to understand it, we have to align it to the reference genome but again, the, this data did not come from the reference genome. It came from an actual genome, a real individual that is different from the reference genome. So this difference between the actual genome and the reference genome leads to a phenomenon called the reference bias, mm. right? Uh, it's like taking a, a, a sentence and trying to look for it in a book that doesn't contain it, mm -hmm. right? You will uh, make uh, mapping errors Mm -hmm. And uh, this will uh, decrease your accuracy and decrease your sensitivity when uh, doing variant calling, for example. So the pangenome fixes this, it sort of gives you many versions of the same book. Mm -hmm. Some versions of this book do contain that sentence that you are trying to find. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you find it, well, you find the variant and this increases your sensitivity, uh, which allows you to find more mutations. Mm -hmm. So... The detected structural variants per haplotype have been boosted by uh, by 104% compared to GRCH38 based workflows and by 34% compared to using previous diversity sets of genome assemblies. So how will this boost in detection impact genomic studies and how might it affect our understanding of diseases with a genetic component? Any genetic uh, disease that is due to a structural variant will benefit from this approach. Mm -hmm. uh, structural variation is particularly difficult to detect when uh, the haplotype that is presented in the reference genome is very different from the actual haplotype in the individual uh, because you don't have to uh, detect the variant, you kind of have to uh, 
rediscover a very large segment of the genome. Uh, this was not possible before with short reads. Mm -hmm. uh, it's beginning to be possible now with long reads. And uh, uh, to truly achieve this task, you really need to do genome assembly, where you don't just uh, resolve small pieces of the genome, you resolve the whole genome. And mm -hmm. then you can do uh, a full genome-to-genome -genome comparison mm -hmm. to actually find all the ways that the genome can rearrange itself. Mm -hmm. So uh, when, like, uh, in making a pan-genome reference, uh, what are some of the greatest challenges faced during the creation of this draft human pan-genome? Right, so there are multiple challenges. Uh, the first challenge is actually obtaining very high quality assemblies. Mm -hmm. To make a pan-genome, you don't need just any assembly. You need a reference quality assembly. That means that uh, uh, the segments of DNA, full contiguous pieces of DNA, uh, have, have to be very long, mm -hmm. uh, preferably uh, comparable to the size of whole chromosomes. Uh, and this is not really an easy task. We are talking about uh, telomere to telomere assembly. The first attempt was really in 2001 when we were, when we were sequencing the first human genome, mm -hmm. and that took billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, today, it can be done with uh, a few thousand dollars. So we've, this is the first uh, problem that had to be solved. Mm -hmm. uh, so in HPRC, they solved this problem again 47 times. Mm -hmm. uh, the second challenge is to find a way to represent all these genomes. It's not enough to just generate assemblies. You have to take these assemblies and relate them to each other, right? Uh, we have to be able to take a genome annotation, something that tells us where the genes are and where all the biologically relevant regions are, and find them in the new assemblies. Uh, right now, the proposed solution for this is something called the graph genome, mm -hmm. where we take all the parts of the genomes that are the same in everybody, and we collapse them into a single copy because we don't need to show them twice if they're the same in everybody, and keeping the parts that are unique between individuals uh, as distinct uh, segments of DNA. And then we take all this data and relate it together using edges, right? So this creates a sort of a, a data structure that looks a lot, a lot like a road. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, every genome in our data set will be a path in this road. Uh, so right now you can look at a sort of map where uh, there are multiple ways to get from A to B and all the ways from A to B describe a possible genome. Mm -hmm. and Today, we call this a graph genome. Mm. So if I'm not mistaken, they only had uh, 47, uh, like, uh, sam like their sample size was uh, 47, right? Yeah. So like, why don't just like, uh, why don't they do it for like 47,000 people? So the answer is really money and resources. Their goal is uh, to reach 300 genomes, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Of course, this, this will have diminishing returns at some point. Mm -hmm. After you sequence a few hundred genomes, 
the amount of new variation that you discover becomes uh, smaller and smaller, right? Uh, the genetic variation in the human population is sizable, but it's not infinite. Mm -hmm. So at some point, uh, we will stop discovering a new variation that is uh, biologically relevant. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm just asking this because like, I have no clue. But like, let's say uh, in some part of the world, I do a whole genome sequencing on someone and I just find like a novel uh, mutation. So can I just like submit this to be added to the uh, reference or something? Well, of course you can take the new genome that you have and sort of add it to the pan genome yourself. Mm -hmm. So today the tools exist to do that. However, the, the point of the pan genome is to be a stable reference resource. So it's unlikely that everyone will be able to add their own genome to it. Mm -hmm. There will be a, a heavily curated set of genomes that is very high quality and, uh, uh, and well-maintained. And people will be able to take that resource and sort of integrate it in their own research. Mm -hmm. And one of those ways to integrate it is to add your own genomes to it and see how they compare to that pan genome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nice. Because I was thinking that maybe like I will just build a dictionary of all the mutations and like everyone, they can just submit their mutations and just like this would be like a, the biggest collection of all the seen mutations in human uh, genome. Do they have like a project like this or just... Right, so this sort of application already exists in the form of uh, databases. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, today we have uh, databases of SNPs that relate these SNPs to uh, all sorts of descriptions. Like, uh, for example, if they, uh, if they are coding mutations or, or non-coding mutations. Mm -hmm. Uh, you mentioned uh, personalized medicine earlier. So what, is, uh, what, what are the potential applications of this pan-genome, like uh, specifically for personalized medicine and like especially in the field of genetic diseases? Right. So in my most recent work, one way we apply the pan-genome is to uh, try to diagnose rare diseases mm -hmm. uh, in, in children. Uh, the challenge for us was to take... Uh, a large set of structural variants that is present in every genome, around 20 to 30,000 structural variants, and reduce it to a much smaller set of structural variants that uh, could be uh, curated manually by a clinician. Mm -hmm. So the way to do this is to take the common variants and throw them away and only keep the very rare variants. And... Uh, because they're the most likely to be pathogenic. Mm -hmm. And we use the pan genome to uh, get an estimate of the frequency of every structural variant and the filter for those that are very rare, like uh, one in uh, 100 individuals or less. Mm -hmm. So uh, would you say that uh, you, you are among the ones that actually benefit from a better pan genome for, your, for the sake of your own research? Uh, well, my whole research involves correcting uh, uh, the reference bias I was talking about mm. earlier in epigenomics. So I was exploring ways, the ways in which uh, using a pan genome instead of a reference genome 
allows us to identify the epigenomic state of structural variation and uh, other variations such as indels. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I believe that personally, I benefited a lot from this, especially in completing my PhD thesis. Yeah, uh, they mentioned that the, the assemblies cover more than 99% of the expected sequence. What does this remaining percentage represent and how might it be tackled in the future? Uh, to date, even with the improvements uh, in the sequencing technology, there are still very difficult parts of the genome that cannot be resolved. Uh, several examples include the regions like the centromere uh, and also regions of the acrocentric uh, chromosomes that have uh, very complex repetitive uh, sequences that, that, that cannot be fully spanned uh, by, uh, by, by the sequencing technology. So in the future, this will probably be addressed with even longer read sequencing technology. Uh, for example, a nanopore could probably mm -hmm. be used to span this, uh, these difficult regions. Mm -hmm. Of course, right now, nanopore has a high error rate, but uh, we can still correct these reads with other data, uh, such as uh, high fidelity, long sequencing reads, or even short reads. Mm -hmm. uh, any additional comments about the human pangenome? So, so, so far, HPRC did the, uh, the challenging work of uh, creating the pangenome. Mm -hmm. However, in my experience, I found that uh, uh, other researchers that are uh, not directly involved in this effort still have difficulty of working with this resource mm -hmm. because uh, the tools are not developed yet. So if you are a genetics researcher, you probably use IGV a lot mm -hmm. or... Uh, the UCSC genome browser uh, to understand your data and uh, to carry out your research. Uh, shockingly, there is no such equivalent right now uh, mm -hmm. for the pan genome. So if you are uh, uh, a researcher that studies biology, who makes use of, uh, of reference genomes, but you are not a computational genomics researcher, it might be very difficult for you right now to make use of the pan genome. So I hope, I hope that in the future, uh, other people will develop uh, the tools that are necessary to make uh, the pan genome a really useful resource. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, so last question: What's next after this draft pan genome? So the fo the following steps include uh, increasing the number of assemblies. Mm -hmm. that uh, are part of the pan genome. Since you've read the paper, you probably noticed the figure where they show uh, the rate at which new sequences are being discovered mm -hmm. as uh, we add more genomes to the pan genome. And uh, in that figure, it's obvious that after the last genome is added, uh, the rate of a discovery of new sequences is not zero. In fact, it's nowhere close to zero. Mm -hmm. uh, so from a... From that modeling, uh, they expect uh, to discover a total of 600 million base pairs of achromatic sequence. Wow. And uh, so far, uh, they found uh, only about, uh, um, if you remember the number. Uh, I guess uh, 119 million base pairs. Right. So they're one-sixth of the way there. 
Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, I had a lot of fun. All right, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a great review on your favorite podcasting platform, and I'll see you again next time.